When we look at the universe, we can see there are stars, galaxies, and more in all directions for as far as our telescopes are capable of looking. But sometimes there are objects out there that don't emit any light of their own that are still remarkable in their own right that we can study. Chief among them are black holes. Not only are there stellar mass black holes produced from individual stars that burn through their fuel and die in these catastrophic supernovae, and then their cores collapse and they form black holes. But lurking at the heart of almost every massive galaxy are these supermassive black holes. What are they? How do we know they exist? And what are we trying to use them for to teach us ever more about the universe? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. So what are supermassive black holes? How did they get to be there? And how do we detect them? And finally, what can they teach us about not only the universe we inhabit today, but how the universe grew up? To help us answer those questions and more, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Allison Kirkpatrick to the show. Allison is a professor at the University of Kansas. She specializes in supermassive black holes. I had a little bit of overlap unbeknownst to me at her when we were both at the University of Florida for a time. And she also is a member of the Sears collaboration, the Cosmic Evolution Early Release Science collaboration, which had some of the first deepest looks at the universe with the James Webb Space Telescope. Allison, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I'm so excited that you're here joining us today. So let me ask you, you know, I remember uh, back when supermassive black holes were sort of a expected thing, but not a sure thing, that we saw from the centers of some galaxies this huge amount of electromagnetic activity. And we were like, what What could be producing those things? And although some people had alternative explanations, the, the consensus explanation is there has to be some ultra-massive engine at the centers of these galaxies condensed in a very, very small space. And that was supermassive black holes. Today, there really isn't any debate over whether these objects exist. Pretty much everyone is certain. If you were running into someone who had sort of maybe missed the last few decades in astronomy, what would you tell them to sort of bring them up to speed as to how we know these supermassive black holes exist from the one at the center of our own Milky Way to ones in galaxies far beyond our own? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Um, so I think that the, the best proof that we have of supermassive black holes is the pioneering work by Dr. Andrea Gez and, um, and her team, and Dr. Reinhold Gensel and her team. Um, and they, of course, won the Nobel Prize in physics uh, a couple years ago. And, um, and what these two teams did back in the 90s um, is made measurements 
of the motion of stars in the center of our galaxy. And um, hopefully everyone um, who's had, you know, an introductory physics class or an introductory astronomy class knows that the orbits of, of stars and of, and of planets um, move under the force of gravity and gravity is a product of mass. Everything with mass has gravity. And so by measuring the orbits um, of these stars, we can use just um, basically, you know, the, the equations that started with Newton and with Kepler, uh, and we can back out the mass of whatever it is they're orbiting around. Um, you know, normally this is really hard to do, right? Like our sun is orbiting around the center of the Milky Way, but we're moving on a 230 million year orbit. But these stars are so close to the center that they're moving on a 10 year orbit. And so, so you can actually map the whole, the whole orbit. Um, so once you, once you figure out the speed and the distance of these stars from whatever it is they're orbiting, you can figure out the mass. And, and using these orbital dynamics, they were able to determine that the, the mass of, of the thing that they were orbiting around is about a million times the mass of our sun. Well, if it's a million times the mass of our sun and it's normal, like like stars, like let's say it's a star cluster, um, you would see that. It would just be too bright. Uh, and so the only thing that could be this compact and not luminous and this massive would have to be a supermassive black hole. Um, and so that was considered really the first direct evidence. So that that makes a lot of sense. You know, I know when I look with my own eyes from a dark sky location, uh, something that I never got to experience until I was already in my 20s growing up in a big city on the very well lit East Coast, um, that if I can see the Milky Way on a dark night, the center of the Milky Way, the center of that, uh, I can't see anything at all coming from that. I can't see stars in that direction because there's this huge amount of light blocking dust. And so there are these, uh, there are all of these telescopes here on Earth that observe invisible light just like our eyes do, and they can't see these stars in the center of the Milky Way. So I know I have to go to other wavelengths, and I think the observations of Andrea Ghez and, uh, and others that have sort of mapped these stars, they rely on infrared observations. And so if you look at this infrared light, you don't. You don't see anything coming from the center of the galaxy in infrared light where that black hole ought to be. And that is pretty good evidence that, hey, this is a black hole. But if I go to other wavelengths of light, if I go to longer wavelengths of light still, like into the radio, uh, or I look at shorter wavelengths of light and I look at the X-ray, uh, all of a sudden, where that black hole area looks dark to, um, you know, optical light or infrared light, I can see something coming from there in both radio light and in X-ray light. So one of the questions that most people wonder when they learn that is, well, if it's a black hole, where is this light coming from? I know, and we, you know, we misspeak as astronomers all the time, too, because I, I always talk about, I just say radiation from the black hole, 
that's not really what I mean. I mean radiation from material near the black hole. Uh, because black holes, um, one of the outcomes of, of general relativity is, is um, it's called the black holes have no hair theorem. Um, and it's kind of a funny name, but it just means that, that once something falls into a black hole, um, all that information is lost. And, and the only information that you can get from the black hole itself is its mass. Um, and so it's by looking at the material around the black hole um, that we're able to see all this, all this extra radiation. So, okay, so with Ch Chandra, uh, the Chandra X-ray Observatory observes in the X-rays, and in the center of our galaxy, there's there's several things that emit in the X-rays. Um, so, so um, certain kinds of stars can, um, but also really hot gas. Uh, that's like where the bulk of the X-ray emission is coming from, um, in the center of our galaxy. And um, and you can actually watch this gas move around, and you can you can infer you can use this gas to infer the same thing um, that you can infer with the stars. You can you can look at the motion of the gas, um, and you can see that it's orbiting around something, and the thing that it's orbiting around um, appears to be an X-ray bright object. But that's only because you're looking at the material very, very close to the black hole. So the radio, um, the, of course, there is a famous image, gosh, was it last year now um, or two years ago? I can't remember. Well, the Event Horizon Telescope, if that's what you're talking about, um, the, uh, the first image they had of the black hole at the center of our Milky Way, uh, that's relatively new, I think. That's, that's only about, you know, so somewhere around 18 months old at the point we're recording this. But there was a different black hole that it measured earlier that it also looked at in the radio. Yes, and that was M87, and that one was, uh, I believe, 2019. Um... Right. And so with the radio, now with the Event Horizon Telescope, they've actually been able to resolve um, where the emission is coming from. Um, and so they've been able to like resolve the, the ring of material right around the black hole itself. You need, you need an incredibly large telescope to do this. Um, it's just not something that's possible in the x-rays. So, so I do a lot of of X-ray astronomy, and when I look at galaxies and I see they're very X-ray bright, I'm inferring that that X-ray emission is coming from the material right around the black hole itself. But we can't uh, we can't resolve that. That's that's what we say uh, when we we're talking about like, well, can you actually see the ring of material around the black hole? No, we don't have that kind of resolving power. So only the Event Horizon or yeah, the Event Horizon Telescope is the only telescope that has been able to do it. Right, because the Event Horizon Telescope, uh, which is not one single telescope, but an array of telescopes working all across the Earth, um, you know, a lot of people get a little confused about telescope resolution because they think instinctively, ah, bigger telescope means better resolution. And that's true if you're looking only at one wavelength of light. But if you're looking at different wavelengths of light, a big telescope that looks in long wavelengths of light can sometimes do worse 
than a small telescope that looks at very short wavelengths of light. Because what really determines your resolution is not just the size of your telescope, but the number of wavelengths of light that can fit across it. So we're lucky when we look at the black hole in the center of the Milky Way that it's bright in radio light. Because with just a few dishes spread out over the entire surface of the Earth, um, you can actually get the resolution of the space between the dishes, the resolution of the size of the Earth, and the black hole is bright enough that it can appear in the telescopes that just have the individual dishes. So you get these little 10 meter dishes all across the Earth. They all look at the same place at the same time, and you can use this to construct an effective resolution of the size of the Earth for the radio waves. But in X-rays, uh, you have the Chandra X-ray Observatory. You have to be in space to see X-rays, and even though X-rays are tiny, much smaller than even ultraviolet light, Chandra is not an enormous telescope. It would be crazy expensive to build an X-ray telescope that was 10, 20, 50 meters in diameter. Chandra is a little itty-bitty thing, but it can still take us pretty close to a black hole it just can't resolve the event horizon. That's that's way beyond current technology. Is that is that relatively right? Yes. Um, yeah. That that was that was a good explanation. Um, and in fact, I think one of the surprising things about the event horizon telescope. Um, I, I mean, I personally was really surprised about this. They took their first round of observations in 2014, um, and combining information from telescopes is, is really difficult to do. So it took them, you know, five years to come up with a solution that they that they believed. Um, and I and I think most people expected that the first image we would see would be of of the black hole in our own Milky Way uh, because it's so nearby. And so it's gonna be bigger than the black hole in M87. And so um, I tell you, all that press conference when they said, and this is the black hole in M87, like my my jaw dropped. I was, I was so shocked uh, because M87 is much farther away. Um, but it turns out the reason we saw that one first, um, so the M87 black hole is about a thousand times bigger than the one around our uh, than the one in the center of our, our Milky Way and the one of our center of our Milky Way is basically just doing less than anybody thought it was I mean we already thought it was doing not much at all um, but it was doing even less than that uh, and so there just wasn't a ton of material around it to be um, bright enough to make it easily detectable so they had to wait until they filled up a few years of observations huh that's interesting that that is different than what I thought the reason we saw M87 before Sagittarius A star within our own Milky Way first was. I had thought that, you know, as you say correctly, um, yeah, the black hole at the center of the galaxy M87, which is the um, most massive galaxy in the biggest galaxy cluster in our own vicinity of space. It's about 55 million light years away, uh, but this is a black hole that's about 6 billion solar masses as opposed to the one in our Milky Way, which is only about 4 million with an M 
solar masses uh, is because of the pesky speed of light. That if you ask how big is the event horizon around the black hole in the center of our Milky Way, the answer is it's, it's pretty big. We're talking something like 10 million kilometers in radius. That's pretty big. But if you look at how big is the event horizon around uh, M87, at the black hole at the center of M87, uh, now we're talking about like tens of billions of kilometers. In, in other words, we're going from something uh, like at the center of the Milky Way where it takes only um, maybe, maybe a a minute or so, or maybe even a few seconds for light to go from one end of it to the other. Uh, when you look at M87's black hole, it takes about a day, a light day, for light to travel from one end to the other. So if you're looking at the black hole in M87, it's only going to have variations in it that are substantial on the time scale of about a day. So if you're looking at something for a day or so, you can get roughly one picture of it. But our Milky Way is like in ultra sped up motion compared to that because it's 1500 times less massive than the black hole in M87. Uh, it changes where the light is coming from around it uh, uh, like it's sped up 1,500 times. So I thought the reason that the Milky Way took so much longer to for us to actually see the picture from it is they had to figure out how to average out all of these different images together as opposed to just, oh, we took an image on April 4th and we got an image and then we observed it on April 5th and we got another image and then we came back on April 10th and we saw it and we said, ooh, it looks different because a few days have passed and it's moved around. Whereas with the Milky Way, uh, it's changing from one minute to the next to the next to the next and you just have to figure out how to average data together in a much more complex way than you'd have to for a larger black hole that just doesn't change as much. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely um, a contribution. I will say that I don't think that was anticipated uh, because I remember being at the um, Harvard CFA. Um, the but SAO? Meet, meet, yeah, but meeting with the, the Event Horizon um, people and um and i was interviewing for a job with them um and this was back in 2015 oh so this is this is famously after they had taken the data but before they had synthesized the data into a picture yeah and so all of their focus was on milky way and 87 was kind of an afterthought um and so they believed that they were going to get the milky way first um, at least that was the impression that I got, and that is kind of like, oh yeah, we're also observing M87, um, and maybe we'll see that too. Um, but I got the impression that they expected uh, M87 to be harder to do because it was farther away. Well, isn't that a good thing that we observed them both so that we could get one picture <laughs> Uh, without having to wait like eight years from when they took the data to get our first picture. I know. Oh, I know. That would have been rough. <laughs> so we're confident that now, because we know how 
these galaxies that we are certain have black holes because we've seen them in the Milky Way, we've seen stars orbiting around them in M87, and in the Milky Way we've seen the actual physical event horizon and the image of that photon sphere around it, and we see x-ray and radio signals coming from them, we can then be confident when we look at these other galaxies in the universe that you can't resolve their black holes directly or you can't see the stars orbiting around them just from the properties of the gas around a black hole and the radiation it emits. Can you still draw a conclusion of, ah, there's got to be a black hole there and I can even come up with a good estimate for its mass? Um, Okay, the mass question is kind of funny. We'll get into that can of worms in a second. Uh, But am I confident that we're seeing black holes? Yes. The the radiation that they output just looks fundamentally different when you have a very active black hole in the center um, than it does when you have stars. And and we can clearly model that radiation uh, with with black body models of certain temperatures and the only way that you're going to get that much gas and that much temperature is um through orbiting um around around a supermassive black hole and then um i mean but but you could also do other calculations uh too of basically can you reproduce the emission of a galaxy with just stars and and so there are some, there are plenty of borderline cases, uh, particularly of galaxies in the local universe that have a ton of dust in them, where it gets it gets pretty debatable of what is the what is the thing heating the dust? Is it an accretion dust around a black hole, or is it just young stars? Um, and those kind of things could go either way. But uh, but a lot of the galaxies I look at, uh, the, the signal is unmistakable. Uh, and and especially you can measure the ionization in the gas. And so your ionization is uh, basically a measurement of how many electrons uh, atoms atoms have lost. And you need really energetic radiation to knock electrons free of atoms. And so you can measure the ionization. And um, if it's high enough, that's another indication that you have to have this really hot source and stars they're just not enough hot stars that are um energetic enough to 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 produce the amount of ionization that we see uh so those are those are some of the things that i look for and then same thing with x-rays uh when you have really really luminous x-ray sources you just you just can't make galaxies that x-ray luminous with just stars alone Before we get into answering that, I'd like to pause for a minute to acknowledge our sponsor. This episode of the Starts With a Bang podcast is brought to you by Avenues Online, the virtual campus of Avenues the World School. Avenues Online is an accredited Tier 1 private school designed for students from toddler through 12th grade who want to pursue a world-class education freed from the constraints of a physical school. Learn alongside peers living on six continents and in more than 20 countries with a global faculty leading the way. Learn more at avenues.org SWAB. Thanks, and now back to our program. 
So would it be fair to say then that you can more confidently say something about a supermassive black hole in the center of the galaxy, the more luminous and bright and hot, especially in specific wavelengths of light, the center of that galaxy is? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the first thing that you want to do, of course, is just detect it. That's uh, my my entire PhD. It's <laughs> just spent on, on talking about ways to detect black holes. And uh, that that in itself is, is challenging. And then once you've detected it, um, then you begin the, the process of converting that radiation to, to physics. Um, you know, I like to, to remind all of my students uh, that astronomy is, it's a different science than, than most sciences. And like, you know, in high school, you learn the scientific method of hypothesis. I go to the lab, I do the experiment. Um, right. We don't follow that at all. It'd be pretty hard to, wouldn't it? I mean, we, we, we have a lab, but the lab is the universe. It's not like we can do things like say, oh, I'm going to drop this star into a black hole. If, if you know how to do that, like, don't call me, stay very far away from me because I'll worry that you'll smite me. That's right. Yeah. So, so I think it's, um, I just get fascinated by thinking about the fact that everything we know about the universe comes from photons. I mean, yes, now we have gravitational waves and neutrinos, but they're a very, very small percentage of what we of what we understand. And so all we're doing as astronomers is we're measuring light. We're just capturing photons that have traveled to us for millions or billions of years. And then we're taking those photons um, and we're trying to decipher them into something physically meaningful. And we're trying to work out what is happening in the galaxy, but all we're seeing is light. And so this gets into the question of, um, you asked about black hole masses. Can we measure those? I mean, yeah, but you have to get creative. And, and so it induces a, a, a little bit of uncertainty, right? Because in, in most galaxies, so in, the center of our own galaxy, we know the mass of the black hole really well. We've been able to measure the orbit of the stars and do orbital dynamics to work out the mass. Um, in other galaxies, you can't do that. And so what happens is uh, a technique called reverberation mapping. And, um, and what you use reverberation mapping to do is um, to measure uh, basically the motion of the gas in the accretion disk. And then from there, you can back out the mass of the black hole. So things around a black hole, like, like you were saying with the Milky Way, um, things around a black hole are changing really rapidly. And so you can get like a burst of luminosity in the inner part of your accretion disk. And, um, and then that light takes time to propagate out. Um, and so then you will see a change in luminosity in the outer part of your accretion disk. Then you will see a change in luminosity in um, what's called the, the broadline region. So the gas clouds um, that are not attached to the accretion disk, but that are still moving under the gravitational influence of the black hole. Um, and then you can even see a change in luminosity in the dust that lies further out from the edge of the accretion disk. Um, 
And so by measuring all of those, so that's that's called reverber, reverberation mapping. Um, what you're essentially doing is you're measuring the size of the region that you're looking at. I see. So this is this is basically if I know how things like energy gets injected from this inner environment into the outer more environments, then as I measure uh, the effects that it has on those environments moving outward over time, uh, then that can tell me something about what's going on back at the center of that source. Yeah, yeah. So you're essentially trying to indirectly measure like orbital dynamics. Um, so the mass of the black hole is related to the speed of the gas and then the distance of that gas from the black hole. So speed we can measure through Doppler broadening of lines. Um, and uh, and I'll explain that in just a second. But it's the size that's really hard to measure. And so the size is measured through the light echoes or reverberation mapping. So you're eventually, you're just looking for like a light echo. Um, the velocity has gotten through through Doppler broadening. So, um, so a Doppler shift happens when different, if you have a source moving towards you, the wavelength of light that it's emitting is going to get shorter. And if you have a source moving away from you, the wavelength of light is going to get longer. Uh, listeners should be familiar with this concept if you've ever had an ambulance or a police car pass you. I like the ice cream truck personally. Yeah, that's, that's much happier. <laughs> uh, much, much better. So, uh, yeah, you can then hear the, the, the sound shift. Well, you know, the ice cream truck is not changing what it's emitting. It's just because it's in motion, it's causing those waves to stretch out or bunch up. Um, and so light does the same thing. Uh, and so we take a line, for example, uh, H, H alpha, it's a hydrogen transition. Um, why pick hydrogen? Hydrogen's everywhere. It's bright. Uh, and so if we measure um, how broad this line gets, it, it gets broader because some of the gas, some of the hydrogen gas is moving towards us, so it's blue shifted, and some of the hydrogen gas is moving away from us, so it's red shifted. Um, and, so, and so measuring the amount of broadening gives us the velocity. We use the light echoes to get the reverberation, um, to get the size, and then bada bing, bada boom, you get a black hole mass. Um, it sounds easy. It's not easy. There's a there's well, a lot it, of uncertainty in that. It sounds like it's a straightforward procedure, but it sounds like many things where you have a straightforward procedure that each step along the way has some uncertainties to it. And I imagine, from what I know, that asking how broad an emission line is, for example, um, it's going to tell you some useful information about like what's the velocity dispersion of the gas inside. Uh, but there are going to be parts of that measurement that are going to be pretty difficult. For example, if you want to know how far away is this uh, region that I'm looking at from the center of the galaxy, well, you can't measure three dimensions in astronomy. You can only measure what you see on the sky. So if that thing is 2,000 light years away from the center of the galaxy in the transverse direction that you can measure, uh, but you don't know if it's zero light years or 5,000 light years away in the line of sight direction, uh, 
things can start to get confounded. You're going to have sources of error attached to each part of this. And the biggest error is generally going to dominate the uncertainties in your measurements. So I imagine that you know, you have certain methods that you use to estimate or infer the masses of these black holes. Uh, and while they may be well physically motivated, that some of them, at least in practice, are going to face some difficulties. So let me ask you, what do you think of that, right? You have these different ways that you can use to try and infer the mass of the black hole, but none of them are going to be as reliable as these sort of direct measurements you can make from, say, watching the stars orbit the black hole itself. And I also imagine that in some systems, these, these uncertainties are going to be larger and more substantial than in other, uh, I'll just put in air quotes that no one can see, cleaner systems. Yeah, so... Um... So the mass thing, so it gets worse, right? So I've explained reverberation mapping, um, and, and you are absolutely right. It's a it's a straightforward technique, um, but something as simple as uh, the inclination of the accretion disk messes messes you up. Um, so if you you can imagine uh, holding up a dinner plate and watching a dinner plate spin around. Well, if you're looking at that dinner plate edge on you're going to me measure velocity one way versus if you're looking at it face on versus if you're looking at it at a 45 degree angle. Um, and one of the, the biggest problems in astronomy is actually trying to measure the inclination of what it is we're looking at. Uh, this happens with galaxies, with stars, and with accretion disks. So that's, that's one example of an uncertainty. Okay, reverberation mapping can only be done in very nearby galaxies. And um, so it's only been done in, in 10 of galaxies. How we measure black holes, so I look at black holes 10 billion light years away. Um, how the heck do I measure those black holes? Well, people have looked at other signatures. So, for example, if you're looking at a cloud in the broadline region, so this is a cloud that is should theoretically be moving just under the gravitational influence of the black hole. Um, so you can measure its velocity. Um, one of the most common things that we look for, there's there's two, there's magnesium, um, and then there's another transition of hydrogen H-beta that we look for. So in the galaxies that have been, um, their, their masses have been measured through reverberation mapping, um, people started to look for other correlations. Uh, so, for example, if you have a mass um, of a certain size, does it correlate with the brightness um, in the center of the galaxy? Uh, so people have used that relationship to infer black hole masses. It turns out it doesn't actually correlate very well at all. There's there's a lot of scatter. Um, but then people have also seen that, that the masses um, correlate with how... Um, broad the lines are in in the broad line region. So in these in these isolated gas clouds moving around. So that is the most common method for measuring black hole masses. So that's what I do. I measure uh, these broad lines uh, in these galaxies billions of light years away, and I use the relation that's been cal calibrated on local black holes, uh, and then I infer their black hole mass. 
it is really uncertain. Um, at least a 30% uncertainty there. Um, possibly, possibly more. So we just kind of, the way that we get around that, well, everyone's got their favorite method. The way that I get around it is I'm, I don't usually look at individual galaxies. I look at trends of populations. Um, and so I kind of make the assumption, which again, may not be a great assumption, that uh, as long as I've measured everything consistently within the population, then I can compare one galaxy to another within my population. But whether or not I can compare those galaxies to other populations that have been measured in a different way, probably not. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest problems we have in in all of astronomy is look you can you can take a nearby object that you can measure really well like in our own galaxy or in m87 and say okay i know some things really certainly about this and then you can take a technique like reverberation mapping and say oh well i can do that in the milky way and in m87 and i can also do this in other nearby galaxies so now for these other nearby galaxies i'm pretty confident in my reverberation mapping because i was able to use it for a galaxy like our own and also for these other nearby galaxies. And then you say, oh, well, now I have this other technique where we're going to look at line widths and we're going to look at specific sets of lines and we're going to look at their properties. And yeah, we can measure those for the galaxies we can do reverberation mapping in. And also we can do that for galaxies that are much farther away. I feel like this is another version of what we do when we construct like a cosmic distance ladder that you're saying, okay, I can measure the close things. And then I also see the things I see in the close things farther away. And now I think I understand the farther away things. So I'm going to use something else that I can see even farther away and then assume that's good. And then all of your astronomy colleagues say, okay, but what about the effects of evolution? Because the things that are farther away have evolved differently than the things that are close by. And what about biases? Because you're only seeing the things that have this big bright signal and that's not the same as all the things you calibrated it on. And also, what about the effects of environment and every astronomer's worst nightmare, except the people who study it, dust? Yeah. Yeah. What about it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that's that's the answer, right? That's the answer is, yeah, that's that's what it does. And uh, those uncertainties are there. And if you want to join this field, you can worry about those uncertainties like the rest of us. That's right. Um, yeah, so I will, you know, I, I, so this gets us into uh, how things change with time. So you mentioned you mentioned evolution, um, and evolution. Um, when we use that word in the universe, of course, we don't mean it in the biological sense. Um, things are just uh, things are changing with time, and that's and that's what we mean. Um, and so, so with black holes, you might ask. Why on earth do you study galaxies 10 billion years ago? Well, it's because that's actually when the universe was more interesting. Um, so the, the life cycle of the universe, right? So it's, it started with, with the Big Bang, and then um, you have the, the cosmic dark ages, um, where at some point 
the first stars and the first galaxies and the first black holes formed. Um, James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope is hopefully going to help us answer that question of, of when those things happen. And another common question is, of course, what came first, stars or galaxies or black holes? Um, pr probably they all started together. Uh, and then after that, you have this period of activity where galaxies are starting to to take on their shape. They're starting to accrete gas. They're forming more stars. Um, they're, you know, they're growing up into medium-sized galaxies. Then you get to the epoch 10 billion years ago, and this is uh, it was this was coined cosmic noon by by Sandy Faber at, um, at UC Santa Cruz, and and I really like this uh, this characterization of it because this is the period where 50% of the stars that we see today were formed 10 billion years ago. Um, and in the same way, most of the supermassive black holes got supermassive uh, at this period. Galaxies were forming most of their stars. They were also colliding. Their, their shapes were changing. Clusters were forming. Um, clusters of galaxies around this time. And, and then things started winding down. So the things that are the most massive finished their evolution uh, around this time because they, they just they created the most gas, they merged the quickest. And, and so nowadays things that are things that are the most massive, like like M87, they're done. Um, they have finished forming all of their stars. They're really they're just passively evolving. If the galaxy gets too close, they'll accrete it. Same thing with their supermassive black holes. Their supermassive black holes are passively evolving. They only grow in size when a star gets too close, uh, and then that star gets ripped apart. Whereas galaxies the size of our Milky Way, um, which are more medium mass galaxies, are the ones that are forming um, most of their stars now. But most of their stars is it's very different concept. So like our Milky Way is forming two solar masses per year. Um, a galaxy that's considered a starburst in the local universe uh, is, is M82, and that one's forming 10 solar masses per year. The galaxies that I look at are forming 100 to 1,000 solar masses a year. Uh, so, so the star formation is very, very different, and the black holes are accreting much more rapidly. So I look at those kind of galaxies and I can understand how these forming, um, these growing black holes interact with the galaxies that, that host them. So you, you are really more interested in not even what's going on at cosmic noon, but a little bit before that, maybe 11 billion years ago, where the star formation rate in the universe reached its peak and where we, where we had a uh, sort of like, okay, this is where the greatest cosmic star formation rate as a function of time took place. That, that at some point early on, you've got like, we're forming the first stars, but it's only a tiny fraction of, of places in the universe are forming them. And that star formation rate rises, 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 reaches its peak, and then gradually declines. And I think it's been gradually declining for about 11 billion years. And the last I heard, the, the best 
measurement of today's star formation rate is that we're only forming stars at about 3% of the rate that they were forming back uh, at their highest rate. Um, yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. Um, yeah, in fact, actually, this brings up another interesting point, which is uh, we don't, the star formation rate doesn't need to be slowing down. Uh, we're not using up all the gas in the universe. There is, uh, gas is still the dominant form of baryonic matter, uh, so non-dark non matter. Uh, most of most of the baryonic matter is, is hydrogen and helium, it's not stars. So the universe could technically form a lot more stars, but it doesn't. This is um, a little bit of a mystery in which supermassive black holes might play a really big role. Uh, because you have a whole bunch of gas that lives outside of galaxies called the intergalactic medium, or if you're in clusters, the intercluster medium. This gas um, could cool and fall back on galaxies. And, and um, when it falls back, when it rains back down on galaxies, uh, it could trigger more star formation. Uh, we think that these really high star formation rates, um, these like thousand solar mass star formation rates uh, in the early universe were fed by these cooling flows of, of gas from outside galaxies. But it doesn't happen locally. The Milky Way has a ton of gas that is sitting outside of it. Um, but it's not, as far as we can tell, it's, it's not raining back down on the galaxy in, in like massive quantities. Why is that? Um, why, why did these stop? Well, um, one possibility, one really good possibility, uh, in fact, like the leading theory is, is supermassive black holes, is that these things, because you have so much material accreting in such a small place, you uh, like there's just incredible physical forces going on at the center because you, you're releasing all of this gravitational energy as your material falls in and it is changing into thermal into kinetic energy um, and then you have magnetic fields as well and these magnetic fields are attached to your viscous material that is moving around very quickly and so your magnetic field lines can get wrapped up and this process uh, can launch these really, really powerful jets. So not every supermassive black hole has them, um, but um, a lot of them do. And so you get these really powerful jets that sweep out of the galaxy. And so if your listeners just Google uh, AGN, which stands for Active Galactic Nuclei, you will see, those will be the images that you'll see, um, is you'll see uh, these, these huge jets um, or huge like radio lobes outside of galaxies. Um, and it is, it is all this material that is both being swept up from galaxy, but it's also the jet um, impacting that intragalactic medium. Um, and it's heating that gas. And the simulations have showed, because we, because, you know, we have to rely on simulations. This stuff takes takes so long. Simulations are our laboratory, I guess, to, to speed, speed things up. Um, simulations have shown that you need this, this feedback, um, these jets from these supermassive black holes in order to heat uh, all of the gas around galaxies enough to stop it from raining back down on the galaxies and starting star formation again. 
Well, that's an interesting point because, uh, you know, I, I remember doing the math about like, okay, how many stars are in the universe? How big is the universe? What's all the stuff in the universe? And realizing that when the Big Bang first occurred before we formed any stars, but after we formed elements in the Big Bang, uh, about 75% of the universe by mass and 92% of the atoms by number were hydrogen. And now, today, 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang, about 70% of the universe by mass and about 90% of the universe by number is still hydrogen. So that's made me think, okay, something has to happen to this hydrogen to keep it all from forming stars. And energy injection makes a lot of sense. If you form a bunch of stars and you have active black holes, the combination of this heat, this pressure, this radiation, a bunch of it is going to get blown out of the galaxy, a bunch of it's going to get ionized, and a bunch of it is going to wind up in what we call the whim or the warm, hot intergalactic medium. And that makes sense for some of it. But like you also say, this part has never made sense to me, so maybe you can make it make sense to me. We know that there are these gas clouds in the outskirts of Milky Way-like galaxies, in the outskirts of these galaxies that haven't expelled all of their gas. And for some reason, even though most of these galaxies aren't active anymore, they're not behaving like active galactic nuclei or quasars uh, were behaving long ago, most of these galaxies are relatively quiet, they're not forming a lot of stars, and if you calculate What's the time scale for infall from an atom in the outskirts of the galaxy? It's long, but it's only like half a billion up to one billion years. So my question would be, if all of these galaxies that had their gas pushed out uh, long ago are still around and they still have the gas in the outskirts, why isn't the gas falling back in and contributing to new star formation? Uh, I don't know. Nobody knows. <laughs> I think that's a, that is a, um, it's a great question. I, I'm going to answer that with another question, actually. Uh, so because that is an ongoing area of research and, and it's a cosmic mystery currently. Um, so, right, because you know, you look at something like the Milky Way, we don't have an active black hole anymore. Um, so in theory, especially in the outskirts, you could get cold gas flowing onto the Milky Way, uh, which I think has been detected like a little bit, but just not very much. And, and why? Um, so there's there's two other gas-related mysteries here that I would want to touch on. Um, one is... Um, the center of the Milky Way is also not forming stars. And the center of the Milky Way has plenty of dense gas in it. Uh, so dense gas is the uh, ingredient, a key ingredient in star formation. Um, and in nearby galaxies, we're able to resolve um, where the stars are being formed. There's two populations. There's one with galaxies that are still forming a lot of stars in their center, and there's another population with galaxies that aren't forming a lot of stars in their center. It does not correlate with the amount of gas that these galaxies have in their center. 
Um, and so what is causing the star formation to stop in the centers of these galaxies? Unknown. Um, the other problem is that uh, even if you look at, so we were just talking about like the intergalactic medium and the intercluster medium, um, and and how there's there's plenty more gas there for, for forming stars. Well, there's even more gas than we know, and we, we don't actually know where it is. This is something that's called the missing baryon problem. Uh, and so if you looked at all of the matter formed right after the Big Bang, and then you account for all of the matter that you can see today, uh, we're missing about half of it. Um, and so it is presumed that this mass, uh, that this missing mass is, is in gas, just like really, really diffuse gas. So if the gas is really diffuse, it becomes very hard to see. Um, one of the ways that we might be able to see this gas is with better X-ray telescopes. Um, but yeah, so about half of the gas is just is just missing. So we should be able to form even more stars um, than with the gas that we know is there that we just know is really hot. So you're saying that we we have these pieces of the cosmic puzzle that we're still trying to puzzle out, um, like like looking at our own Milky Way. The, the supermassive black hole isn't injecting energy, very much energy, into the rest of the galaxy. And we don't have a lot of hot young blue stars to eject, inject energy into the galaxy. And it's been a long time since we've had a major episode of star formation. And we don't anticipate we'll have another one until about 4 billion years from now when Andromeda gets close enough to trigger it. Um, so... Why is all the gas not forming stars, both in the bulge of the Milky Way? Why is our star formation rate in the disk and along the arms so low? And how come all that gas in the outskirts isn't flowing in? And your answer to all of them is, yeah, Ethan, I have those questions too. So does everyone. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So I teach, um, I teach an introductory astronomy class. And, uh, and so I like to talk very much about like modern astronomy and what are some open problems in astronomy and my comments from students are universally like this class is really neat because i thought science was done and i didn't realize that there is still so much to learn about the universe i'm used to like just reading everything in a textbook well let me add on that then and let me drag you in a different direction uh while i rag on our milky way for a little bit yeah great um, <laughs> Because, you know, look, yeah, our Milky Way clearly did something right because we're all here. So it did right by us in that regard. But when I look at the Milky Way and I compare it to other galaxies for whom we've measured the mass of their supermassive black hole, one number always sticks out to me. And that is the ratio of the mass of our supermassive black hole, which is 4 million solar masses, to the overall mass of our galaxy, which is around a trillion solar masses. That is a tiny ratio compared to almost everybody else. There are a few other galaxies out there with black holes that are less massive than our own. And those galaxies are universally much smaller and less massive than the Milky Way. When we look next door at Andromeda, 
Andromeda's maybe double our mass. Maybe some people even argue it's less than double, but maybe double our mass. But its black hole is 80 million solar masses. The black holes we measure in galaxies in the Virgo cluster, many times as large. Why is our galaxy's black hole so tiny? I have an idea. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had it. Uh, that maybe we were those one in a few thousand galaxies that when we gobbled up another galaxy and our black hole merged with another supermassive black hole, it got enough of a high velocity kick to kick our original black hole, original supermassive black hole out of the galaxy. And this four billion, four million uh, solar mass puny remnant is probably just whatever we've been able to rebuild since we lost it long ago. Have you ever given any thought to a scenario like that? And do you think that that, that might actually be relevant for why our galaxy's black hole is so tiny relative to our galaxy's mass? Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Cause I, I like that thought a lot. Um, so first of all, what I want, if listeners take away nothing else from this talk, um, the thing that I want them to remember is that a galaxy is not a scaled up solar system. So our solar system, all of the planets are orbiting around the sun because the sun has most of the mass. The sun has like 99% of the mass in the solar system. And so there's this misconception out there that is the same way with galaxies. We're all orbiting around the center of the galaxy because there's a supermassive black hole in the center. Um, so that's not true. That's in, in every galaxy, you could get rid of the supermassive black hole. Galaxy's not going to care. The supermassive black hole is, you know, at, at most, at most, like a thousandth of the mass of the galaxy. Um, ours is particularly tiny, but... And so, and so for the scenario about how black holes grow, um, supermassive black holes don't actually grow most, um, they don't actually accrete most of their material. They grow by merging, like you said, um, because galaxies also grow by merging. So we build up galaxy mass through, through various mergers that happen. When those galaxies merge, um, the black holes uh, should just fall to the center of the new galaxy, and they should also merge. Uh, the problem is, uh, actually, the, the physics for describing how black holes merge together aren't, aren't great, um, you know, because a lot of stuff, you have a lot of general relativity effects going on in the center, and, uh, and so you've got to get your, your black holes to spiral in and get close enough and then actually finally merge together. Part of this process is that um, when, you know, when you throw things together and you let them gravitationally interact, they can do weird things that you wouldn't predict. So um, you can get a kick instead of instead of losing momentum and falling into the center. You can you can get a kick and you can be flung out of, of your galaxy. So we see that a lot in, in simulation um, observationally. 
um, there's been like a few, like maybe two or three, um, where people have speculated that you, you are actually seeing a supermassive black hole that has been thrown out of the center of a galaxy. All right, so with our solar system, because we know how much material was in the solar nebula, and we understand um, a lot of, of how solar systems form, and we know how much mass is in here now, um, you can do, you can run computer simulations to see what would have happened. And this has led to some hypotheses that, for example, we had another planet because we, we have enough mass um, in the initial solar nebula to have had another planet, and it just got flung out. Um, Jupiter, Jupiter messed a lot of things up. Um, you can't go back and do that with galaxies because, especially not like with our Milky Way, there's just way too many moving parts uh, to do that. Our Milky Way is merged with, with multiple galaxies um, over the past, so we can't dynamically untangle the history of the Milky Way in the same way that we can with our, with our solar system. So um, it is definitely a viable hypothesis uh, that, that, that certainly could have happened, um, but there's no way to prove it. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you know, I suppose the only way to do it would be to track it down and be like, oh, there it goes, moving directly away from us as it's been influenced by the other. But, you know, a as you can probably imagine, if we lost this galaxy during like our most major mergers, which happened between, I believe, 8 and 11 billion years ago, uh, at least as far as we can reconstruct, uh, you know, take take roughly 10 billion years and roughly 5,000 kilometers a second, and good luck finding that black hole that doesn't emit any light roving through intergalactic space. <laughs> yep. So it, it's it's probably an interesting idea, but it'll probably be well up to the simulators to to bring home at some point whether it's the most likely or an unlikely scenario. Uh, one of the things that I was really curious about is, um, you know. We've all been very interested in the late results that have been coming out from the James Webb Space Telescope from JWST. You know, this is, it's been putting out science for almost a full calendar year as of summer 2023. And one of the first sets of images that were released were of a familiar group of objects of uh, Stefan's Quintet. And this is a group of five galaxies where one of them is just a foreground closer galaxy that happens to be along the line of sight of four more distant galaxies that are actually gravitationally bound and merging together. Um, right. In these galaxies, um, when you look at the Hubble images, the optical images, they look like normal good-looking galaxies. When you look at the near-infrared image of the Stefan's Quintet galaxies, again, they look like beautiful, gas-rich galaxies where you can see uh, new stars forming, where the warm dust is, where the cold dust is, and a whole slew of background galaxies. But when you look at the mid-infrared image, 
there's a feature that sticks out like a sore thumb. And that's at one of the galaxies. It almost looks like there's a foreground star from the Milky Way right in the middle. That's how bright the diffraction spike pattern is coming from one single point at the center of what looks to be the topmost galaxy in that image. I've been led to understand that that bright, bright, bright mid-infrared signature means that you're seeing a supermassive black hole in the center of that galaxy. Um, is there a reason for that? Have I been led astray? What is it in mid-infrared light that a supermassive black hole or maybe an active supermassive black hole would look so bright when JWST takes a look at it. Yeah, so you have not been led astray. Um, I don't know if it's conclusive, but this has definitely been one idea for all of these, um, all of these diffraction spikes. Um, because the other thing that could cause it uh, is is just a bright star cluster. So you'd really have to look at like all of the emissions in the galaxy to tell. Uh, but either way, uh, what is happening here is that you just have a whole bunch of emission concentrated into a very, very small space. And so um, so the first ever supermassive black holes that were observed uh, back in the 50s or 60s, were called quasars, um, and because they were they were named quasi-stellar radio objects, but it later became quasi. Or, the, well, the first quasars were quasi-stellar radio sources, and and then there were quasi-stellar objects or QSOs, and it was only much later that we were like, nope, they were all galaxies that have stuff coming from them. We just couldn't see the galaxy part because we could see the radio stuff better than the other stuff. And now we even know there are radio quiet quasars out there. So take that 1950s and 60s era astronomers. First. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, so the quasi-stellar objects. So they were called that because if you look at these things, they look like stars. And so if you just take an image of it, it looks like a bright, point source. Um, so you can't resolve point sources with telescopes. Um, and it wasn't until they looked at the spectra that they're like, well, this doesn't look like a stellar spectra at all. Um, they realized that, that they had a galaxy, not a star. Uh, and so and so that's essentially what you're seeing in these images, is you're seeing these really, really bright point sources. Um, because the galaxy is, is so far away, uh, and most of the emission is coming from the center, uh, it just looks like a point source. And, um, and so anytime you observe a star, like a bright star, um, you're going to get these diffraction spikes. It's, it's just a property of, of optics um, and, and quantum mechanical effects on your detector. So if you were really um, conservative about what claims you were willing to make, you would say, ah, it's just a bunch of mid-infrared light that's behaving as a point source. And although that could come from a black hole, it could come from anything else I cooked up that made it look like a bunch of mid-infrared light and not a bunch of near-infrared light or optical light was coming from this point source. Yeah, sure. So the other thing it could, it could be, um, I mean... Yeah, so, so the other thing it, that it 
could be would be a starburst uh, because those tend to happen in the center of galaxies and, and then you just happen to have a bunch of dust around it and the dust is obscuring the near infrared light. Um, so that's why you're not, that's why it doesn't look like anything in the near infrared, but in the mid infrared you have a whole bunch of very hot dust. Um, so, you know, you have to, you have to rule that out and, and the way to rule that out is just by measuring the galaxy brightness at different wavelengths and then you can model the emission. So, so it's kind of this process of elimination is that you say, well, it could be a black hole or, and then you cook up everything else. And then you say, well, everything else I cooked up is going to have a different multi-wavelength profile than a black hole would have. And so then you have to combine your many different observations at many different wavelengths to say, okay, now I've whacked all the moles and I've killed all the other, you know, alternatives. And the only one left standing is what it actually is. That's right. Hey, science, that's how we do it. <laughs> yeah, we sure are good at cooking up things it could maybe be, though. Right. <laughs> So I want to ask you, uh, it was only relatively recently, over maybe the last year or so, that we discovered an object that we called the first galaxy quasar hybrid, that when we sort of look early on at the, at the earliest, earliest galaxies we've ever seen, um, they all look like galaxies, right? If you look at GNZ 11, which was the most distant galaxy that Hubble ever saw, or any of the five more distant galaxies that JWST has already seen, including Maisie's galaxy from your collaboration, the Sears collaboration, um, you say, oh, these are all galaxies and not quasars. Um, but at some point, quasars start to appear, and they talked about this one object that they called a galaxy-quasar hybrid, and it was either one of the earliest quasars uh, that was still somehow kind of dusty, or it was a galaxy uh, because it was still rapidly forming stars and the feedback from the central engine hadn't uh, quenched it yet. And they were like, this is this weird sort of in-between object. And I wanted to ask you, because you work so much on supermassive black holes, uh, what we think is going on or what you would say the leading picture is for how do you get a quasar and make it turn on and what does it do to your galaxy when it is on mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah okay so i just i just pulled up this paper and your article on it uh because i am looking at their plots right now and i will tell you <laughs> what i think um it's okay if it makes you feel better. One time I asked someone about something that they were unfamiliar with. They went and looked up the paper and they said to me, Hey, look, I'm a co-author on this paper. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Um, okay, so here's my opinion uh, on this paper. Um, they're modeling the dust emission very, very simply is what they're doing. I, I don't think their modeling is correct, but I didn't referee this paper. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, this galaxy is, is really, really interesting. Um, for a long time, this has been, um, 
this has been like suspected to be to be a quasar for a while um and so yeah how do you get a quasar at redshift seven um oh good you put it in your article 730 million years after the big bang so you have to do that calculation really quick um yeah how do you get a quasar that quickly uh this is this is one of the great cosmic mysteries um we don't know uh, so, so to explain to the listeners why this is interesting, to, uh, quasars are the most active supermassive black holes. So they are accreting the most material, and they're doing it very rapidly. And they are some of the most luminous objects in the universe. Okay. Well to accrete a lot of material, you need a lot of gravity. You get a lot of gravity by being big. But you grow big with time. And 730 million years is a little bit early to be this big, to have this much gravity, um, to be this luminous. Hmm. So there's a few things that could be going on here. Um, So number one, um, well, this galaxy is really interesting. I can see why they call it a hybrid. Um, so, so one thing that could be happening is that our understanding of how black holes accrete material is is incorrect, particularly in the chaotic environment of the early universe. Um, so, all of our accretion models uh, are based on. Um, this idea of either a, an accretion disk feeding onto a black hole um, or or spherical accretion. Okay, so so maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe you have different models for accretion. Um, then the other the other problem is that um, uh, black holes also rotate. If you change how the black hole rotates, like if it rotates faster or slower, it's able to accrete material differently and more efficiently. Um, then you have the problem of the Eddington luminosity. Right, right. That's the maximum allowable luminosity that a spherically symmetric accretor is allowed to have. That's right. And so if you exceed this, this luminosity, the radiation pressure overcomes gravity and you just blow your material away yeah it's like uh it's like getting your hair blown out right it just uh right but these black holes might not be spherically symmetric accretors and they're rotating um so that changes the allowable eddington luminosity and maybe there's a mechanism whereby you can accrete at higher eddington luminosities um for, for a short period of time. You can exceed your, your threshold for, for a short period of time um, and still be and still be stable. I've also heard some people talk about that you might be able to exceed your Eddington luminosity for longer times if you emit your energy in an aspherical way. So if you if you radiate your energy, say, along uh, you, you can't see it, but I've got my fist together with my thumbs pointing up and down away from each other. Um, like if you're if you're 
accreting energy or sorry if you're accreting material in this axial direction like in the disk of a galaxy but you're blowing off your energy uh in jets perpendicular to the disk of your galaxy maybe you can still form new stars and emit all of this brightness um if you're shedding your energy efficiently in directions that aren't getting in the way of oh i've i've got too much energy and now i've i've overcome gravity and pushed everything out right and we think that black holes do that you know we think that the most luminous part of the supermassive black hole is the accretion disk um and then the black hole energy goes out orthogonal to that through um, through jets um so that you know so maybe so so maybe that's that could also happen um the truth is we just we just don't know um and so so what does this mean well galaxies are as bright as they are you know so this is this is a really bright quasar really early on but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's really massive because if the accretion is different than what we understand in the local universe then this light doesn't translate to mass in the same way um, and so that could resolve the problem um, of how do you get a black hole this big in this amount of time? Well, maybe it's just not that big. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I know that we've had issues with that. I remember uh, not so long ago, people were claiming that this uh, relatively nearby galaxy uh, called NGC 1277, um, people were claiming, oh, look, this is a spiral galaxy not too different in size from the milky way and it looks like it has an 18 billion solar mass black hole in it and then people went back later with uh, different observations and said okay actually we think at most this galaxy's supermassive black hole is 1 billion solar masses and it may be less so i, I do understand that like it's possible that you can grossly misestimate something uh, especially if you base it on observations that you, you don't have a lot of objects that do this. And so we're making inferences about objects in a different range and, oh, now we see something doing this. And, and you can draw an incorrect conclusion based on that. Uh, is that what you think is going on for these for these super Eddington accretors or for these early quasars or for these galaxies that are growing very rapidly for how massive they are so early on in the universe? Or is that is that not something you believe? No, I think they're accreting at super Eddington rates. Okay. Um, I also think my, my other my other um, hypothesis um on this also a side note i just looked up this paper because you had me freaked out that maybe i was a co-author on it <laughs> and i'm not like, but, but i've written papers with this author before so i wasn't sure <laughs> so um no i'm not a co-author on this one uh okay. yeah, I know. <laughs> um right so the other thing that that could happen um is that these black holes could have just started bigger um, so we really, we really don't understand how supermassive black holes formed in the first place. This is this is another thing that we're hoping JWST is going to answer for us. Um, and you know, there's a couple different modes of formation. One one is, um, you know, you talked in your intro about, about stellar 
collapse. Uh, so, you know, when a massive star dies, there's just not enough pressure to stop the halt of gravity and you get a black hole. Um, so the seeds of supermassive black holes could have formed that way from the very first generation of stars, which were ultra-massive stars. Um, but then the other, the other method is direct collapse. So you get a gas cloud that starts collapsing and um, just, you know, there's never enough pressure to halt the collapse and form a star. So it just keeps collapsing all the way down and you've got a supermassive black hole. You know, it's really interesting. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the first paper that proposed the existence of black holes was written by John Mitchell, who was uh, Henry, Henry Cavendish's advisor. Um, and his way of conceiving a black hole was to take something that was the density of the sun. And the sun is not that dense of an object. It only has about the density of water. And he said, and if the sun were 500 times larger in radius, it would have enough mass in there that light couldn't escape from it. And that was his way of thinking of a black hole is to take a modest density object and say, well, just how much volume and how much mass do I need for something of this density to collapse into a black hole. And I think it's very interesting that there is this monolithic direct collapse option for black holes that maybe as early as between one and 200 million years after the Big Bang, right when the very first stars are forming, that you can have regions where this mostly hydrogen and some helium gas uh, just collapses into too dense of a region and boom, you, fall, you form an event horizon without any stars at all. And I think that's that's actually a real possibility, which is something that personally makes me very happy because I've always thought all of the primordial black hole um, solutions to how you can have a black hole before you have stars are are really uh, physically unmotivated or you really have to like invent some new physics that you're like, oh, well, that's really, really weird. Even for a theoretical physicist, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So so the direct collapse method is the is the leading method. It's the preferred method right now. Um, and again, JWST should be able to see some of these things. The problem is do we know what we're looking for and are we going to be able to distinguish it um from other bright compact objects at um 400 million years after the big bang uh so that remains to be seen uh, but so so you know maybe we just don't understand this mechanism well we haven't observed it it's, it's all theoretical um so maybe we just don't understand this mechanism and so maybe you can form more massive black holes or more of them and so they merge much faster than we think that they should and so then you, you can actually build up something with a very large mass um by 700 million years after the big bang interesting i mean it's a really exciting time to to study this this kind of stuff because JWST is just like, you know, I just remember last summer when every day was a paradigm shift with with what we were seeing. And so it's really changing our conception of, of the early universe. And so hopefully we'll be able to understand the formation of supermassive black holes uh, much better than we, than we do now. 
Well, this was one of the major science goals, right, is to not just show us what the universe looked like, but to teach us how the universe grew up. So if that's if that's our major science goals, and I know you've been working as part of collaborations using JWST data, um, can I ask you what are some lessons that you expect us to learn over the next few years about supermassive black holes from JWST? And I don't need to know what you think like, oh, we're going to like learn that it's this and not that. Like I, I'm really – I'm not asking you to, you know, Madam Mamushka yourself and predict the future. I'm asking you, uh, can you tell us what observations – we're going to take that's going to teach us something meaningful about the early universe? Well, I hope that with the observations that we are currently taking, so I'm, I'm a member of a team called NG Deep, which is is going as deep as you can with, with the JWST um, right now, and, um, and you need to go really deep um so you know for non-astronomers what, what does this mean deep means leaving your shutter open for longer um so that you can observe fainter and fainter things fainter things are far away far away as early in time um and so when we say we're going deep it means we're looking like deep into the time of the universe um and so i'm hoping that these observations we will be able to distinguish direct collapse black holes or really young black holes um the trick is <laughs> is, how, is how do we know what we're looking at um you know i mean this is this is what i wrote my thesis on how do we know what we're looking at but i was looking at 10 billion years ago and we now understand what we're looking at really well 10 billion years ago we understand how to distinguish supermassive black holes from star formation Okay, well now we get to do that all over again, uh, but in a totally new epic, because the gas is different, the amount of dust is different, the types of stars that you expect are different, the sizes of black holes are different, um, and you know, like just for example, one of the things that's really exciting is um, the first galaxies that, that that we observed with with JWST are all too massive. Or, you know, we start looking back in the early universe and everywhere we look, we find a massive galaxy. Um, some of that was wrong. So some of that was just calibration errors. Some of it was um, there was more dust in these galaxies than we thought and dust gets you every time. Um, but but a lot of those early results have, have held up now that uh, spectra has been used to observe these galaxies. And so, so galaxies are too massive. Well, one explanation for the fact that galaxies are too massive is actually, again, this idea that all we're observing are the photons. So we might be converting those photons into a mass incorrectly because everything that we know is based on nearby galaxies. And maybe conditions are so different in those early galaxies that you can't convert light to mass in the same way. So we're gonna have the same problem distinguishing very early supermassive black holes um, because we don't understand galaxy emission super well just yet. And so one of the things that I think JWST is going to teach us that I'm really excited about is what what the first supermassive black holes looked like. We're going to be able to find them. We're going to see how common they were. Uh, we're going to see how fast they're accreting their material. And we're really going to push 
below 10, 10 billion years. Right now we, we right now we understand the growth of supermassive black holes from 10 billion years on. We don't understand it before then. Um, and so I think in five years time, we're gonna have a much, much better understanding of how black holes grow right up the Big Bang. I think that's really interesting because from what you've told us, uh, that's during cosmic afternoon and beyond, right? We're, we're learning how, gal we, we already know how these supermassive black holes grow once we're past that peak of star formation. But but we don't know anything about cosmic morning. We don't know anything about how they grow during the rising part of star formation history of the universe. Right. So that's a really interesting way to put it. And I'm really curious about uh, what we're going to find the connection is between not only galaxies and black holes and galaxies and gas and galaxies and dust and galaxies and metallicity, uh, but what sort of connection we're going to find between uh, these active supermassive black holes and what that means for the types of stars you get in the galaxy. I I remember when I was young and naive or less educated, I thought that the sun would be a good proxy for an average star in the universe. And in hey, some ways... You and, you and Carl Sagan, so don't feel bad. Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, so one of, the, one of the things I thought is like, okay, well... Most of the stars in the universe are red dwarfs. Uh, the sun is actually more massive than about 95% of the stars we see today. So maybe if we look uh, early on, you know, you had more of those blue stars, you had more of those bright stars, uh, fewer of them have died off because they're the shortest lived ones. So it would make sense that if you look to galaxies at earlier times, they'd be bluer, and their mass to light ratio would be different. In fact, even if you look at galaxies today, like you look at our Milky Way as a whole, or you look at other nearby galaxies, uh, it looks like the average star has about three times as much light for every solar mass that our own sun has. So we know that the average is skewed, and I'm curious about how much more skewed it was earlier on. Like, the fact that we we see today there's about three times the amount of light that our sun would give off for every solar mass of material. I kind of wonder, you know, was that ratio even more extreme earlier on and how much? And is that dependent on the amount of heavy elements you have in your galaxy? Because the amount of heavy elements are what I understand is what cools your gas and the rate at which your gas cools determines how massive the stars you form actually are. And I, I'm sorry for, for that thought, because it doesn't have anything to do with black holes. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, 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 in the early universe, stars wouldn't have been as metal rich. Um, so that, that changes the nature of, of what they're emitting. Um, the first generation of stars would have been more massive, and there is a wide debate on what more massive means. Um, because again, it's all just computer simulations. So somewhere between a hundred to a thousand solar masses. I've, I've heard several thousand floated uh, by some oh, people. Sure. Okay. All right. Um, why not? Uh, so, 
it, it all just depends on your parameters and how you're doing your modeling right now until we have an observational constraint on that. Um, but the, the big problem with with this is that so so when you're measuring the mass of a galaxy you're not taking the light of one star and converting it because you can't see individual stars in other galaxies um instead you're taking the integrated light of the galaxy and then you're modeling it with a combination of how many massive stars you think it has how many um low mass stars you think it has and then you're using that ratio to convert the, the light to a mass um how many massive versus how many not massive stars a galaxy has is based on the initial mass function. The initial mass function tells us um, when you have a burst of star formation, uh, because stars don't form singly. Stars, um, when, when a cloud collapses to form a star, it always forms lots of stars. And um, so the initial mass function tells us the distribution of how many low mass stars you form versus how many high mass stars you form. Well, as you might imagine, this is um, really hard to measure, <laughs> like like everything. And uh, so it can be pretty debated. The only galaxy that we've measured it pretty well in is our own. Um, and then we've, we've measured it okay in other galaxies and they're pretty similar. And so we just assumed that the initial mass function doesn't change. So when we're looking at these these galaxies in the past. Um, one of the one of the problems is that the initial mass function probably does change, because you don't have metallicities. Um, your your clouds are are hydrogen rich, as you said before. Um, when you have when you have heavier elements, it helps to cool your gas, and so when your cloud collapses and forms stars, it can fragment differently. Um, without those heavier elements in your cloud, um, it's going to collapse differently, it's going to fragment differently. Um, and so you probably can't apply our, our initial mass function. Um, but what can we use? We don't know. You can't measure this. You cannot measure this anywhere but the Milky Way where you can resolve individual stars um, or nearby galaxies where you can semi-resolve individual stars. Um, you, so you just have no hope of measuring it. So that is kind of based on like theoretical work of, of how do we think the initial mass function would change? If the initial mass function changes, how do we convert this light to a mass? Um, my guess is, um, and this is just pure speculation, that in these in these early report, reports of massive galaxies that the initial mass function um, is probably wrong. There's also probably more dust than they're accounting for. And those masses are gonna come down, they're gonna be lower. Interesting. So I'm I'm excited that even though, you know, obviously there are some parts of these questions that are currently like we don't know how we're going to answer that at all, uh, that some of these aspects are really uh, coming to within, you know, what current technology is is capable of observing. And uh, and that's that's, I think, a real reason to not just be excited about where we are at this point in the game, but where we're headed. Um, and as you said, this last year with the, uh, as we've entered the JWST era, um, it's really, it's really been eye-opening and fascinating in a number of ways. It's sort of helping us shed light on which simulations uh, we should be paying more attention to, and maybe which ones are missing key aspects that are reflected in the data. Yes. 
Well, that's really great. Allison, I want to thank you for what's been a really interesting and far-ranging discussion. Uh, thanks for going so deep into these details about supermassive black holes and for sharing so much wonderful science about the universe with us. Before, before we end this episode, I'd love to ask you if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners out there. Yeah, so I will I will share a final thought, which is that um, a lot of the really cool things that we're learning is a, is from JWST. Science, um, most science is funded with taxpayer dollars, and we are in a budget crisis, and we've been in a budget crisis for a while. And so, if you're really excited about science, communicating that um, with the people that work for you, you know, your senators and your congressmen is is great. It helps uh, people like me be funded to push the limits of human knowledge and, and to, to help us understand the universe around us. Right. And for those of you with congresswomen, don't be afraid to write to them either. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> congressperson. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Allison, this has been a wonderful discussion, and I'd love to thank all of our listeners out there. You're part of what makes this podcast worthwhile. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor once again, Avenues Online. And I'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to specifically thank everyone by name who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. So thanks go to Chad Marler, Jeff Bonwick, Lainey Chuist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Chikutas, John Methot, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Seagreen Mango, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech, LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, George Church, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Kili Aopu, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Teixeira, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick DeWitt, Robert Thibodeau, Ron Schiffman, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Cameron Sowards, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Diana Nevins, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Flo, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nader, Hirolamo Castaldo, Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bergeron, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Matt Reno, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Owen Mann, Pam Harris, Paul Lester, Pavel Zazelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Ron Lyle, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Nordhoff, Stuart Lending, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Waldron, Wayne Pierkarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.